Hi everyone and welcome to Hit the Apex. It's the week following the Azerbaijan Grand Prix, another bonkers race in Baku, what we basically expected but not to the degree that it was bonkers. In the end, we'll be wrapping up the race for you on this week's podcast, going over the digest as always and having a bit of a discussion about some of the um, events that came to fore in Baku. But anyway, it's Juad joined by a... Baden, who's celebrating his birthday today. Let's uh, start off by saying happy birthday. We always seem to celebrate your birthdays on the podcast. I think the last few years we have uh, recorded on on the day. So first of all, happy birthday. Um, hope it's a good day for you, um, even though you've got to go to work later. So um, I'm sure something can be arranged to be celebrated. Yeah, we'll get there in the end, but it's just a case of, uh, I don't know, you get to that point where it feels like just another day. So you just got to get on with it and uh, celebrate it for what it is and really just a good company for the time that it is you you appreciate it and uh, I think after the the weekend we've had there's a lot to discuss so we should uh, get right into it get right into it into indeed and I guess uh, the main thing to take away from it was uh, that Lewis Hamilton ended up winning the race and taking the lead of the championship as well despite having been really nowhere throughout the whole weekend and to and a greater extent, the season at large. I mean, apart from Melbourne, where he was in the lead and then had the lead, <laughs> sorry, taken away because of the the safety car. Um, Hamilton's really been rudderless for the balance of the season, and then three laps from the end of the race in Baku, he ends up uh, taking the lead and winning. I think um, on that note for. Hamilton, we did discuss after China, we didn't think the, the circumstances uh, came together that Hamilton would have perhaps been right on song across that whole weekend and really find his mojo once more, but he's he's lucked in, probably you could say he's um, been restored that victory, he lost at Australia, so it's a bit of an equilibrium there for him, and he, as a result, quite inexplicably, you might say, he, he leads the championship, and that might be the impetus he needs to to get on with the job now they return to Europe from next weekend. Yeah, well, we said before the race that this is the event that he's struggled at over the past few years. He's had heartbreak here um, last year, of course, with the headrest coming undone and, of course, the clash with Vettel. So the fact that things have come back in his favour this time round and he's ended up winning it, um, probably, as you say, yeah, it could kickstart his campaign. But let's look across the entire race itself and... Um, Boy, heartbreak, disaster, up and down the grid. And I guess what happened to the Red Bull guys sort of topped it was the uh, cherry on the cake. And, you know, let's say that I guess it was pretty inevitable what was going to happen. And we'll discuss Red Bull in more detail after we finish wrapping up the race anyway. But let's go to Valtteri Bottas first. And, boy, that was cruel and heartbreaking to see that. You know, with three laps to go, he was robbed of the win. He was in the position to win the race for the second time in a row. He was on the better strategy, of course. Uh, They played it quite well um, with Bottas. They left him out for a long time on those super soft tyres, which he started the race on. And then regardless of what happened to the Red Bulls on lap 40, um, Mercedes were going to pit Bottas on that lap, put him on the ultra soft tyres. And by then he had enough of a gap to overcut by a large margin, uh, Sebastian Vettel, who ended up losing that race, of course. And yeah, with three laps to go, a puncture for Bottas on the back straight, 
um, caused by what we believe was a piece of debris that came off Kevin Magnuson or Pierre Gasly's car. We'll talk about those That's two in a while. Brighton crash in its own right, so we'll touch on that soon. Yeah, we'll touch on that soon. A bit of a come together between those guys. So, yeah, a bit of metal left on the track. And uh, basically, yeah, that was the end of Bottas's tyre. And, um, you know, we saw the images after the race and probably one of the most um, galling pictures that uh, will be within the memory banks for the rest of the season I think is uh, Bottas hunched over just with his helmet on face down and even all the interviews he did post race too he doesn't normally wear the shades but yeah he had the dark shades on and you could tell what was going on and I think his comments were something like 10 pints of beer are gonna fix this for me afterwards so yeah it's a bit of a heartbreaking uh, heartbreaking conclusion considering that was his win for the taking and also the uh championship lead would have been too because of his consistency just shows you that as much as he's talked about as the so-called robot ass he's clearly human and uh, just like Kimi Raikkonen if he was in the same position they're really passionate especially those Finns are almost you could argue the most passionate they, they stand almost purely for for victory nothing uh, less is any satisfying so you can see really on the basis of what he went through at china as well it's just a setback and um all that talk about hamilton commiserating with him that's only going to go so far to see when he clearly um he did all the work and yes he was lucky with that safety car intervention but he was in the position to capitalize and so close to the flag it really is uh, soul crushing yeah well we be talk we were just talking about it off air anyway but um Bottas so far this season um despite what happened in Melbourne where he had that crash in qualifying and then just looked sort of rudderless during the race um since then he has really been the better you know the stronger driver at Mercedes and a lot of people will probably criticize you for saying it because he's teammate to Lewis Hamilton but yeah we saw what happened in Bahrain and how he was criticized for having a lack of intent to pass Sebastian Vettel to win that race but Bottas is more of a defensive driver I've found than uh, an attacking driver and his defense is when he is in that position is you know, something to behold of because we saw that last year when he won those two races in uh, Russia and Austria that he wouldn't let Sebastian Vettel pass even though he was on the better tyres and was just pressuring him, a four-time world champion, pressuring a guy who's yet to win a Grand Prix and now, you know, three wins into his career, Bottas, um, you know, he's got that now to defend really well. So if he finds himself in that position again, and I'm sure... If he didn't have that puncture there in uh, in Baku, that he would have had to defend that lead once again. He would have pulled it off. So, um, you know, he would have led the championship. We could all say that in hindsight. But as you said with Hamilton, that after this race and after the win, it could kickstart his campaign. Do you think this, it'll be the same with Bottas, knowing that he's had that heartbreak and he can heartbreak and he could use that motivation to. Um, perhaps charge himself up for the next few races and perhaps uh, take those points and the wins away from his rivals and really put himself in this championship. Well, notwithstanding Australia, it was more or less uh, an impossible task after his crash in qualifying. You date back the final three events of 2017 and he ended it on a, on a really high note. Those well, three consecutive. He had, the, he had the victory, of course, at Abu Dhabi and you cool. go through Bahrain. Yes, he was a little timid. Perhaps the aggression with the... Um, defence could be worked on a little bit but aside from that he's almost been uh, on par with Sebastian Vettel this season as the driver of the season well yeah exactly and it's a 
big season as well because he's off contract next year and all the talk is that he's going to be uh, deposed for that seat at Mercedes and some other uh, person will come in, whether it's a Ricardo or one of those Mercedes junior drivers like Esteban Ocon or we could put Fernando Alonso's name into the mix as well. But anyway... Um, so, disaster of a weekend for Bottas, and um, yeah, you have to really feel for the guy as well, and um, hopefully he bounces back for Barcelona. So, during that safety car, of course, with the clash with the Red Bulls, um, Daniel Ricciardo basically went into the rear of Max Verstappen heading into turn one. Um, we'll talk more about it in detail later, but it was on lap 40. That brought out the safety car, which sort of changed the complexion, the complexion of the race. Um, it saw Roman Grosjean find the wall as well under the safety car which was really bizarre to see and it's like surely that that couldn't have happened but it did happen but it was Ericsson and it was supposedly Marcus Ericsson that hit him even though Ericsson was like several car lengths behind basically basically on another planet when uh, Grosjean um, had that crash so that capped off a disaster of a weekend for Grosjean having had issues throughout the whole um Sorry, in the build-up on Saturday, on Saturday after yeah, qualifying. after qualifying. So, you know, we'll talk a bit about Grosjean as well and where his season's at at the moment. But, yeah, with Grosjean's car having to be cleared up, the safety car stayed out a bit longer. Um, it saw the likes of Bottas make his pit stop and then uh, Vettel and Hamilton, I think, also, or not Hamilton maybe, but uh, it saw Sebastian Vettel, Kimi Raikkonen take the opportunity to take new tyres as well, even though their strategies would have seen them come home. But, you know, getting fr- if you're getting a free pit stop, why not take it, you know, and get those fresh tyres to try and attack? And Sebastian Vettel, who was on pole position, he had led for the majority of the race. He was caught napping on the restart, you know, I guess a bit... Had the feathers ruffled a little bit by the fact that Bottas had overcut him in the pit stop, and basically, yeah, he had to make an ambitious move into turn one to try and take that lead back. But yeah, it was as ambitious as it was. He uh, ended up losing out, locked the brakes, and you know, after the race, he said that um, you know he had to make a move. You know, there was no point just resting resting on his laurels. And in the end, I guess fourth is not going to be too big of a hit, but especially when Lewis Hamilton ended up winning the race, I think uh, Vettel might have rethought what he did. What's most surprising, from my point of view, he's come under some criticism for being too desperate and saying he hasn't learned from the mistakes of last season. It just shows you that he wants to capitalise now, and yes, he could play the long game, but it's almost as much of a sign of respect to Bottas that he made a move and saying, oh, well, I'm ahead of Hamilton here, so that's what counts. He clearly wants every victory he can take. This time it didn't come off. Perhaps next time it will, so I think we've got to give credit to him, and fourth, it could have been a lot worse. Well, yeah, it could have been China worse, where he ended up finishing down in eighth or whatever and lost a whole bunch of points, so looking back, I guess you could say China was probably the worst uh, the worser race for him than, than Baku, so fourth, not a bad outcome for Vettel then, but then it really just changed the complexion of the podium you could say for the race. I mean, Kimi Raikkonen, he started the race by having a crash with Esteban Ocon on the first lap and he was you know way down in the field and had to basically recover those positions ended up getting that free pit stop and ended up finishing second in the race so another podium for Kimi there and that was a a good result for him despite the fact that you know where he started the race and Esteban Ocon it's only the second time in his career that he's had a retirement and that the first one came in Brazil of course last year and that also happened on the first lap too so Ocon a bit unfortunate I guess considering what 
how his teammate ended up on the race as well, finishing on the podium, Sergio Perez. Um, another great race for Perez, picking it up, um, despite, you know, he had a first lap incident too with Sergei Sorotkin, who ended up retiring, but Sergei Sorotkin was penalised. Um, he'll be... I think three places on the grid for for the next race in um, Barcelona, but yeah, Perez just picking up those podiums wherever he can, and you know, like Kimi, he had to come back from the rear, having had repairs done to his car, and then, um, you know, his last podium also came in Baku two years ago. So yeah, getting the bang for the buck for Cindy again. And Perez uh, again, he um, quite laughably puts himself on that. That radar, if it doesn't come to pass with uh, Daniel Ricciardo, people saying he could yet have a future at Ferrari. So it shows you that he, he delivers the results. He, he capitalises on that attrition, as we've seen over the years, particularly these these street-style circuits. He really comes into his own, and I guess Force India, it's a big morale boost for them considering where they've been at on and off the track over the off season well yeah when you see force india up there on the podium then you've got to lament um some other guys races well grosjean was saying after the race in his uh very uh destroyed state that yeah he was racing perez at that point in the race so the podium could have easily gone to the Haas team if uh, grosjean hadn't found the wall during the safety car but then when you look at other guys too renault uh they were racing really strongly early on in the race um it was unfortunate that nika hulkenberg had to retire he ended up finding the he ended up finding the wall as well early on and um they were just uh carving up those red bulls you could see um basically in tandem carlos Sainz, nika hulkenberg versus max verstappen and Daniel Ricciardo and uh, Red Bull having issues with their battery or something, which we'll talk about when we're talking about the incident in, in at large. But um, yeah, Carlos Sainz ended up finishing fifth, which was equal best result for Renault, I guess you could say, since they came back into the sport in 2016. And unfortunate, yeah, they, that Hulkenberg had to retire because I'm sure that those guys would have had the pace to challenge for that podium as well. Oh, this is good for signs. He had a bit of a slow start to his campaign, so that gets him on the board, and he just needs to keep up that consistency. But for Renault, they'd be disappointed not to have uh, really the struggle to get both cars in the points to date. And you can see that they're they're making the strides forward, but clearly they've got that hope there to be pressing on legitimate race pace for podiums sooner than later. Yeah, well, when you consider that. The other team powered by Renault Power, Red Bull, uh, you know, they've already won a race. I guess they're taking each other out and losing a lot of constructors' points. If they're going to do that for the rest of the season, then, you know, you could see Renault gain a lot of points on them, which would be crucial. Um, I guess it was important to point out, too, that we had some first-time point scorers as well and great races from uh, Charles Leclerc, of course, and Brendan Hartley scoring their first points in F1. Um, Leclerc up there in P6, which is phenomenal for Sauber especially I think it's their best finish in about two or three years or something so he along with you know the guys who finished on the podium were assisted by that uh, safety car and ended up taking free pit stops Brendan Hartley as well after the start to F1 he's had and everyone's saying that oh he's nothing compared well, Saturday, to Gasly he had the NASA based mission to space yeah basically you know pissing um Pierre Gasly off 
there on Saturday. Okay. He ended up finishing 10th to score his first point in F1 and a lot of relief there for Hartley as well. You know, this is someone who's really well credentialed in the world motorsport. He's the reigning world endurance champion as well and scoring his first points in F1 would be a huge uh, monkey off the back for him. Um, but yeah, for Sauber and Leclerc, you know, great result there and um, I guess... Sauber looking stronger and stronger, you could say. They had points with Ericsson in the last couple of races, and of course uh, now Leclerc getting on the board as well. Um, it's just showing progress for the team. And suddenly we have lonesome old Williams looking further and further away from it. As much as Stroll got some good points there, they're just looking very much like they're making up the numbers, and Sauber's finally getting perhaps courtesy of that tie-up uh, strength and collaboration with Ferrari. It's really starting to come online. Well, yeah, Williams, at least they got up on the board too with eighth with a uh, Lance Stroll there. But as we said in the preview, um, that they're just boosted by Mercedes power unit this weekend and the car still is uh, nowhere near that level of, as you say, even the uh, Alfa Romeo Sauber. So, um, yeah, we're, this is probably just a one-off for Williams and we might not see them scoring many points if uh, Sauber continue to do so. Yeah, I guess it's just one of those uh, weekends or Sundays where they've got to take the points and happily move on, but they can't be expecting it on a, a weekend-by-weekend basis. Well, Stroll made some comments saying that he believed that they could have finished on the podium again as well, so I don't know where that came from. Yes, the uh, the old ambition courtesy of his... Uh his father, I'd say, rubbing off a bit there. Oh, you could say so. But, uh, yeah, to round it off then, McLaren, I guess, uh, another great race from Fernando Alonso. He just pulls the uh, the rabbit out of the hat, always a magician. Saturday was awful, you could say. They just, both outside the top ten, didn't look to have any pace at all, did Alonso and Stoffel Van Dorn. But then Alonso as well, he was on two wheels at the end of the first lap as well. He had a coming together with, I think, Sorotkin it was as well um, as Perez and ended up having to pit for repairs. He had a damaged car for the entire race and ended up finishing in um, in seventh. So great stuff from Alonso there. And of course, a couple of points too to Stoffel Van Dorn in ninth too. So McLaren, we've talked about them. They're not where they wanted to be um, this season so far. But, you know, in the races, they are scoring those points. But, you know, you do get the feeling that if they had that better car, that they could be um, up there a lot further, you know, top five territory. Yeah, well, that talk of the fundamentally new package from Spain and just that talk with Tim Goss's departure and what I've already held that belief of, it's going to take time to, to gel with the Renault engine. I think it really will be 2019. If they're in the same position in 12 months' time, then it'll be legitimately saying uh, McLaren's having a, a full-blown crisis Full of its own order without any kind of ties back to Honda or teething issues with Renault. Yeah, you know, they're independent of Honda now, so none of those issues can be attributed to them. It's all on it's all on McLaren now and of course, you know, Renault they're a stronger power, they've got a stronger package um, with that power unit, so nothing no excuses for them anymore. So rounding it up then, I guess yeah, biggest thing to take away, Lewis Hamilton has that four point lead in the standings over Sebastian Vettel now and we said before that it would have been Valtteri Bottas leading the championship for the first time in his career if he didn't have that uh, heartbreaking puncture. But, um, yeah, you know, big, big win there for Hamilton and just lucking into it, you know. He basically was rudderless for the whole weekend and then to take that win away... Um, you know, how crucial will become the end of the year when he ended up getting those points over the likes of Vettel or even Bottas? 
Yeah, I think he's just got to take them, and whether it is the kickstart he needs, he's just so mercurial that um, there's the PR angle as well. It's hard to know what to believe, but he clearly did uh, emphasise how he was more concerned for, for Bodas, so we've always got to take... Uh, Take his actions with a grain of salt. It might be said, but well, if he wins the and, well, yeah. if he wins the championship at the end of the year by the points that Bottas lost, is he going to say, "Oh, you know, I had to apologise to Valtteri for winning the championship because of the points that he lost in Baku"? But I'm just going to take this one anyway. Oh, you can I'm so blessed, man. Clearly, when it serves his own agenda, it's clearly going to be taken gleefully. But he's always going to push to show himself as a sympathetic hero. Oh, of course, it's all part of that PR angle, as you say. But um, more importantly, too, with Williams on the board now, all the teams, all ten teams, have scored points, which is a great thing to see. Yeah, because it never happens. I mean, we had who was who was without points last year? I think, uh, or oh, well, Salba did score points last year, but it took a long time for them to get on the board. So, uh, all ten teams on the board. And and all the drivers but two now have scored points too, and that's Roman Grosjean and Sergei Sorotkin, who have had terrible luck, you could say, this season so far. So hopefully they end up scoring some points sometime soon. You think Grosjean probably has better chance than Sorotkin at the moment. So um, we'll see what happens with those guys in the coming races. But uh, anyway, drivers of the day, it's going to be... Um, there's more drivers that you feel sympathetic towards at the end of that race rather than um, drivers that, uh, you know, you could laud for their performances. But for me, yeah, Charles Leclerc, definitely the standout there for his uh, race. Yeah, I think um, similarly, probably just pipping Sergio Perez, who is very opportunistic, and you've got to tip your hat off to them. Sure, the safety car for, for really all those guys who end up jagging solid points, they utilise that uh, timely intervention, but that... That's the name of the game. And for Sauber and for Leclerc, after a bit of a, an inauspicious start, you could say really uh, finding his feet a bit, this will give him the world of confidence. Yeah, exactly. So we'll see what happens in the coming races, of course, uh, with upgrades coming for Barcelona, you think, for the majority of the teams. And I guess, as we always say, year in, year out, Barcelona is the place where we get a true reading into how the teams are looking as far as their packages are concerned. So, yeah, big uh, fortnight looming, I guess, ahead of uh, the next race, uh, a return to continental Europe as well. So let's go over the digest now. And um, a lot of big news, actually, from just last couple of days. And the big one was that the aero changes for 2019 have been uh, approved by the FIA and by Formula One. So we're going to have big development changes for next year, which is going to be a surprise um, with simplified front wings to make their debut. And considering that this wasn't even on the agenda last year, the fact that after the Australian Grand Prix that um, they called to for this and within not even three months or whatever, they've already processed it and got their teams to look at it and say, right, is it a viable thing to do? Yes, let's do it. It's it's pretty rapid considering how slowly things have moved in the past in Formula One. Yeah, whether it's a sign of proactivity from the, the, the Liberty, I guess, impetus there with Ross Braun at the, the charge of the technical side or whether it is a, just a pure knee-jerk reaction, you'd hope this one... At least it ties more towards what 2021 will be, the, the full stream changes take effect. But on the basis of the past three events since Australia, that it does make you scratch your head a little bit to think, do we need anything that radical? So hopefully it, it's well thought out and something which does have a long-term place rather than just being some measure just for the sake of, of change and saying, 
oh well this is it and take it or leave it because there's always the view if, if this doesn't work then what are we going to do change up the drawing board in another 12 months time? well yeah exactly that's why i was so heavily critical of it saying that why are they looking at making the changes for next year considering yeah we've had now three great races out of four where you know overtaking has been um overtaking has been there but then also um with big changes coming for 2021 why don't we because cost is such a big factor these days and the little teams are going to struggle with their development if they have to look forward to 2021 and also make these sort of changes significant changes for the years to come is it absolutely necessary and if as you say yeah i'm I'm in the greens there if you know it does for the bigger picture help what 2021 is going to look like then that'll be great because it means they'll get a, a head start into that but if as you say you know it's not going to make much difference and whatnot and it's just a knee-jerk thing then that's going to be pretty disastrous again because it means that as well as having to look forward to 2021 developments they're going to have to spend more time and resources and money on uh, making changes for next year and 2020 as well yeah it's a bit of a halfway house it means they've got those two development cycles to adhere to and whether that's going to perhaps um, incentivize a few of um, those midfield teams perhaps just to ride off the next couple of seasons essentially and just make sure it's all working towards 2021 the next few years are more of a a testing bed it's really a a bit of an interlude period so it's going to be fascinating to see what the the quality of the entire sport is over the the interim couple of seasons well yeah with the power unit as well the current iteration still going to be developed as well up until 2021 unless they take Renault's calls and do a complete engine freeze which wouldn't be a bad idea to be honest considering how much money goes into the development of those things and it might even level out the playing field a little bit until we get those big changes so yeah, a lot to look forward to and to, to digest as far as those changes ahead are coming. But we've had three cracking races so far this season out of four and heading to circuits like Barcelona and then, you know, Canada and all that. You know, we're going to just continue getting the exciting level of competition. We've had three teams fighting for the lead. Um, we've had a competitive midfield where the results have always been mixed as well. So... Yeah, I think the racing product at the moment is pretty exceptional and um, we could just expect more of it to come for the rest of the season. And as an aside, I think it's quite remarkable how marginalised the that spectre of the halo has become. It's almost like it doesn't exist when you see the quality. It's oh, just you've, you haven't you haven't heard a peep from anyone about the halo. So as, as we said, coming into the season, I guess it's just one of those uh, aesthetic things that, you know, people are going to beat up on if you know the racing product wasn't up to scratch or whatever if we had boring races for example then you'll find that the fans and people are just going to start nitpicking over just anything saying oh you know the cars look terrible because of the halo yeah sure you'll still get comments here and there but um it's not as bad as we first thought so you know just onwards and upwards i guess yeah it just shows one of those things that it mightn't be perfect there but it's it's clearly um not been to the detriment of the sport and uh, with ross braun you're just got to have faith that these changes are going to be under the right watch well yeah he's got a good team around him and whatnot and i guess in regards to these changes for 2019 um 
uh, Nicholas Tambazas, the ex-Ferrari guy, has been heavily involved in that working group to, to research and develop what the front wings will be like for 2019. So it's good to see that those ex-engineers that have been with the teams up until recently are having that impact for Ross Braun. So good stuff. Um, another bit of news coming in last night was that the Miami City Council have put forward a proposal to host the Formula One event in as early as 2019. So that that um, being said, you know, they're looking at hosting a race in the uh, for the first race in October, so taking over from where the Texas race is currently, so having, I guess, that little North American, South American spell in the early part of the season, uh, or in the late part of the season, having it paired up with Miami, Austin, then Mexico, Brazil. Um, it's another good thing to see. And Miami was one of those races we were told would be on the agenda and it looks like it's happening and then Hanoi will follow soon after. And what is quite ironic, uh, almost um, as Valencia fell off the circuit, there's talk that it'll be at the expense of Baku and despite all that derision that we've had about, um, I guess, its ethical uh, standpoints of being on the, the calendar. It's served up some great racing, so it would be a shame for it to be lost to the sport so soon when it's a, it's probably now, uh, unless we have even another bonkers race as crazy as we did last week and uh, two of the best races in recent memory. Well, yeah, last year, of course, and then what happened this year too. And Baku, I guess, uh, yeah, we had all that criticism in the start, but then um, looking at, you know, what they've done as far as implementing... Uh, you know, just embracing the race as well. It looks like they've all embraced it there. And we heard too that um, as far as marshalling and whatnot was concerned as well, it's a fascinating story that... Um, Our learned friend Joe Sayward reporting on the politics of Baku. Oh, yeah. The, intriguing read. Yeah, um, that the marshalling or whatever, that rather than hiring all offshore people, they've incentivized for, you know, bank managers and just people in high positions or whatever to get their teams, like just normal white-collar working people or whatever, to, to be trained as um, marshals or whatever, get their teams together and just... Yeah, get them to volunteer, I guess, like you see here in Australia, for example, or in the UK, where there's a lot of uh, volunteer marshals that, you know, just they do it for years and years. And perhaps, you know, this all is what incentivizes keeping the race in Baku, that they've really embraced the motorsport there. And I guess that was a problem going to somewhere like Baku in the beginning, where it's like they've got no motorsport heritage or no real interest there so why are we going to a place like this but when a country embraces it properly not like korea did for example or india or whatever um it, it actually then you say oh well you know i wouldn't mind keeping the race here but if as cutthroat as the calendar's got to be if you know there has to be a race that you've got a cull to bring in somewhere like Miami, which, you know, an exotic location, another race in North America, which is quite important to the current owners of the sport, then, yeah, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing Baku drop off the calendar, but hopefully Miami is just as good. Yeah, it's really, you can see, as long as it doesn't become just the, the American show, it has its place in the calendar, and logistically, if it, it pairs up, if they can get that um, in sync across the, the board perhaps it might take a few years to get that structure bang on but having the, those blocks geographically where events tie up so it's not such a, a strain on all the personnel then you can see that moving forward there's a lot to like about these events getting on board well there was a lot of talk about regionalization and perhaps moving those american races into the where the 
Canada races in the middle of the year sort of thing. So having all of them at that time, so whether it's Miami, then having race in Texas there as well, and then Mexico maybe at that time of year. It's it's interesting what they're doing there. And then Pan-Pacific races, so like all the races in Asia, Australia have them in a particular block and then maybe have the Middle Eastern races at the end of the season with the European ones firmly in the middle. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that calendar shapes out for next year and beyond, but uh, we'll see, yeah, if uh, what the Miami circuit and everything looks like once all the approval's been made. Yeah, I think really um, small steps, but in the long-term picture, it's going to be a different sport, but Liberty should get it right. You can see that um, yeah, they're, just, they're taking the time. They're not chucking in everything as a knee-jerk measure. And uh, based on the racing we've had to date, <laughs> who knows what the following 17 events will, will serve up. Oh, we hope they're just the same, just as crazy. And yeah, I'm sure everyone will be in love with F1 again. And talking about what Liberty are implementing, so from Barcelona, they're going to be debuting a f1 live show on twitter and uh streaming a live program on twitter that's uh not one i've heard of before but uh yeah they're going to be doing that for for 10 events this season after the race um hosted by will buxton of course and nico rosberg will be joining him too and they're going to be playing highlights throughout the show as well of the race and just analyzing and dissecting it so that's i guess another incentive to get on social media for people to tune in and you know they'll answer live questions and whatnot as well so um for f1 to start doing all these things in-house it's really good to see and um of course um f1 live is going to start in um all the f1 what is it the streaming service is going to be up for barcelona as well isn't it yeah it's just all and probably good timing for the european season when you could say that officially commences and really get into the, the thick of the battle so they've had a bit of time to sort out any teething issues over the, the past the couple of months and you hope that for those who are fortunate enough to have access to that service they're going to be served a humdinger of a show and everyone else who has to wait for the, the balance of the the broadcasting contracts to expire wherever they might live then they'll know what they've got to look forward to yeah unless we all just jump ship and move somewhere else where we can access the uh, Barbados or something where I think they do have access to F1 Live anyway so yeah that'll be exciting to see how that all pans out and whatnot so we had Sauber as well uh, issue a statement saying that York Xander has left the team um, effective immediately and this is only after that he joined the team again because he was there with BMW Sauber um, a few years ago but yeah he rejoined the team last year having come over from Audi after their world endurance program was shut down so yeah immediate effect so whether this destabilizes their technical working group remains to be seen but yeah you could say that a lot of the uh, uh, credit can go to him and his team for where the car is at the moment this year. They've started off very strongly, of course, and of course Leclerc with P6 there in Baku scoring a big haul of points. So wonder what where this leaves Sauber for the future. Yeah, you got to hope at least they can um, continue on with that philosophy that he's he's given them, and clearly with the assistance of Ferrari and talk of Alfa Romeo perhaps becoming even larger partners dare we say majority owners of the the outfit that they've got a bright future ahead yeah certainly they do and then of course um lastly to end on red bull and honda they come out publicly and say that yeah they've been in discussion um in baku and they're going to keep talking in barcelona about the future about 2019 to get that engine supply happening and um i guess this was inevitable you could say the fact that you know renault are not looking to renew their relationship
relationship with Red Bull beyond the end of this year. So the fact that, yeah, once uh, we found out that Toro Rosso and Honda were going to link up, that logistically and ideally that um, Red Bull would have taken on the supply as well at some point. Yeah, well, we can see that it's been a testing with, with Toro Rosso and certainly just showing more uh, race trim promise and at any time over those three seasons with McLaren. So it's a step forward for Red Bull, I guess, having the independence and autonomy it's craved and where it leaves them as far as the 2021 regs and that talk of a of a completely independent partnership with, say, a, a Cosworth base engine. It's something that... They've probably been, it's a long time coming, that talk even going back to sort of 2014, 15, that they wanted the Honda supply then. So it could be could be the right time next year for that to, to commence. And I guess really that, that'll be a point when it'll be fascinating to see how that relationship goes. Uh, I mean, we've seen how much of a whipping boy Renault's been in recent seasons. Whenever something's gone wrong, it's their fault. Whenever something goes right, it's all on Red Bull. It is indeed. But um, one thing that a lot of people have been asking is that Where's the logic in taking on Honda Supply when they've got Aston Martin as their title sponsor and then, of course, the talk that Aston Martin are going to take over the uh, majority of the team in 2021 when they get their own power supply happening? Um, Aston Martin, Red Bull Racing, Honda, um, that's a bit of a mouthful to swallow. Would um, it be the same situation as they have with uh, Tag Heuer at the moment or with Renault, sorry, that... uh, It'll be a Honda power unit, but badged as uh, something else, perhaps? Wouldn't be surprising. Who knows? Maybe they'll just continue as Tag Heuer for the interim, and that'll get around that with uh, external publicity for Honda so that they actually get some kind of uh, presence and they're known to have success if Red Bull can really propel them to where they want to be. Yeah, so that'll be an interesting one to see. And as said, yeah, Helmut Marco saying that um, they're going to continue discussing it in Barcelona as well. And it looks like things have been pretty positive from the outlet. So yeah, as we said, coming into the season, it would, as long as Honda have a quiet year as far as getting on with business and developing and not make a big fuss like was happening with McLaren, I'm sure they'll slowly make those inroads that are necessary for them to, to be competitive. Yeah, and you just hope uh, as much as it's a bit of an odd one for a couple of seasons, it really will be that point where Red Bull have to put up or shut up if they do go with Honda. Yeah, another team that you've got to say put up or shut up in that case. You could say that about a couple. But let's move it into our discussion while we're still on the topic of Red Bull and let's ask the big question, what what happens now um, with what's happened in Baku? So obviously... Both cars didn't finish the race. Uh, Daniel Ricciardo um, into the back of Max Verstappen, though arguably not at fault, you could say. Verstappen perhaps once again doing his signature double move, uh, moving twice to defend that line, and Ricciardo being left with nowhere to go. Uh, Greats like Nicky Lauda have said that it's 70% Max's fault, 30% Ricciardo. other people have come out and said the same thing, that, yeah, what was Dan going to do in that position? There was nowhere for him to go. And, of course, when you look at what's in the lead-up to those events, um, you could just sense it coming a mile off. And let's start off by just talking about the race itself, where both of them were in the same proximity to, with each other. Max Verstappen was having issues with his battery, as was said on the team radio. Daniel Ricciardo seemed like he was a faster car, yet... Why wasn't the faster car ahead of Verstappen? 
It's Team Verstappen. It's very clear. And as much as the fallout suggests that they're unwilling to, to portion more blame one way or another, certainly nowhere more so towards the Verstappen camp. So it's become pretty um, obvious to, to all that Ricardo is being marginalised here. Marginalised, yes, you could say definitely. But, you know... When you look at it from holistically, who was at fault and who holds the accountability for this as well? So at the moment, no one, the accountability has been put on the drivers, you could say, but could we argue that perhaps the team's got to be held accountable for not for not managing the situation? Having, uh, having said that, yeah, you could smell that this situation was coming a mile off. Why didn't the team step in and do something if there was problems with Verstappen's car, if the other car was faster and their rationale is the fact that oh we're just letting the drivers race that's what we that's what everyone wants right but not to the point where this sort of thing happens it's just a manifestation of that philosophy that Verstappen is the future and it doesn't matter what the the cost is to the the team result whether it means Ricardo had a genuine crack at a a podium or even more in that carnage who knows he could have capitalized on everything that went down with with any kind of safety car if it wasn't the red bulls colliding could have been something else and he might have had another victory on the cards we know how he makes the most of those chances but we'll never know if that could have come to pass now and i think they're happy just to to give uh, deference to verstappen in every instance deference to verstappen could you say and I know this term's been used a lot, but we're saying shades of 2010 again, you could say. And it's funny, I said this before the race, you know, to you, that it seems like, oh, what if we have a championship just like 2010 on our cards? And, you know, we have um, an incident between the Red Bulls and then Verstappen goes on to win the championship, even though he wins only one or two races like Sebastian Vettel did in 2010. And... I guess the first part of that prediction's already been served true with what happened, and this was pretty much Turkey 2010 between Weber and Vettel, and the same outcome, basically, as Turkey 2010, where the team says, right, you've got to apologise to the factory, you've got to basically take the slap on the wrist, but then nothing is done about it internally. It's like, yeah, apart from the Aussie being marginalised, and let's we're not trying to be parochial here or anything, <laughs> um, if it was someone else too in the shoes of Daniel Ricciardo who isn't Aussie, I'm sure the same thing would happen. I think really it's, um, as far as you think of the structure there, the common denominator is Helmut Marco and just that talk. It's, it's very hard not to draw that conclusion that he does have something against, particularly in these instances, Australians, and they, for whatever reason, don't get the, the same treatment as his protégés do in the first instance Vettel. And now with Verstappen, clearly he runs the team with an iron fist and who knows if uh, Christian Horner and co are at his mercy. He's essentially the, the puppeteer there. So um, as long as he's in that role, um, they will all be based around his power structure and Max Verstappen. Uh, we've seen how many mistakes he's made now. Really, um, you can do it um, in isolation um, or look at it you know, objectively across the board, what it comes down to um, Sunday. Clearly, he, he thought he had the the leverage there from Red Bull, whatever it takes, he's got their backing, and on this occasion, it's really bit them badly. Bit them badly, indeed, but, you know, the fact that, oh, yeah, let's not um, proportion any blame to Verstappen, um, what about, and this goes back to accountability, the fact that they've just hemorrhaged how many, I'm not going to even 
try and calculate how many points they just lost in that race, where they would have they finished. As you say, as you as you say, you know, what if Daniel Ricciardo or Verstappen actually went on to win the race as well? Um, they've cost themselves a win here and a, a lot of points in the championship. And come the end of the year, are they just going to? Uh, hang the rope around Renault's neck again and say, oh, because you guys didn't give us a good enough engine, that's why we uh, didn't uh, win the championship. It's it's races like this where, you know, there's an internal blow-up that where the team's got to take accountability for it. And then um, what lessons do you learn from it? What are we going to see in the future? And if this is... Um, the same outcome as 2010, then basically, as you say, yeah, they've already marginalised one driver, so, you know, they're probably going to do the same with Daniel Ricciardo, but the big question to ask now, and you spoke about this in your article earlier this week, is that, you know, what does Daniel Ricciardo do from here? Is this the catalyst for his departure? A lot of people say, yeah, that well, he's got to jump ship now, because if he stays with Red Bull, and this is what... Uh, is proportioned basically from it, then definitely there's no room for him there and he needs to go somewhere where he's able to um, spread his wings and show us that he's a driver capable of winning championships. Yeah, it's almost like uh, we saw with Mark Webber in 2013. In that case, it was to retire from Formula One, but it was that uh, Malaysian um, debacle with, with Vettel Multi-21, which really confirmed to him that he needed to abandoned ship and so for Ricardo I think this one will be a clincher that um, if he was thinking about showing any loyalty there it's not going to be forthcoming and uh, really he's just got to take that leap of faith now and you can see that he is in demand and he's not going to be used as a as um, some kind of scapegoat to the same extent as it's pretty clear the the intentions are from Red Bull um, ongoing. Yeah so it's just one of those things again that uh now that it's happened and you look back like in the heat of the moment you were just both of us were pretty frustrated and just annoyed with what had happened and I basically said you know I knew this was going to happen I knew this was going to happen but now when you look back in reflection it's like well I hope that it's not going to be the same outcome as Turkey 2010 because I want the appropriate justice to be to be found and whatnot and if that does mean that Ricardo this is the catalyst for him to leave Red Bull and end up at a Ferrari or a Mercedes then so be it because you know he doesn't deserve to a driver of his caliber doesn't deserve to be in Verstappen's shadow and Verstappen still showing that immaturity we were saying that has he turned a leaf after China for example um, and decided to hone his skill and not get involved as much anymore but no he hasn't it's gotten even worse and when is he gonna then calm down and make sure that he refines his driving style because at the moment still yeah like you'd expect after China what happened there where he came together with Sebastian Vettel that he would you know perhaps lay low for the next race but yeah he still balls to the wall and um at what cost and the cost is that Red Bull have lost a lot of points in the championship, but because Red Bull are too marginal to to put the blame on Verstappen, um, they're not going to. If it was any other driver, they would say, you know, if it was Gutierrez or Maldonado or whatever, they would say, oh, you know, you keep crashing, you're losing us points, what are you going to do? You get lost. I think it's accepted that uh, Verstappen has a slight edge in terms of raw pace, but when it comes to all-around racecraft, Ricardo leaves absolutely nothing wanting, and um, we very seldom see him have a collision, and this one on Sunday was born really largely from Verstappen's tactics, which he's tried on everybody, and Ricardo, 99% of the time, that move would have been executed flawlessly. He's so elegant on the 
the breaks there. And I think for, who knows, you saw the leverage that went to Danny Kafiat. He had a podium one race. He was out the door the next. Verstappen's now had four races and four times he's... He's had dirty heels, and yet there's no sign of him being on shaky ground. No, so not at all. What's going to give for him to really um, be given an official warning Ex- or reprimand, whatever it takes? Because slap on the wrist, that one that they've uh, announced publicly and the apology at the factory, that's not going to do anything to de-incentivize Verstappen from continuing his cavalier tactics. Not at all. And uh, a lot of people coming out and saying that perhaps he should be given a one-race ban or something just to reflect and whatnot. Like, I'm not beating up on him and saying that he's uh, just a shocker of a driver. He, Yeah, he is a once-in-a-generation talent, but to get the best out of him, I think he needs to... Or someone's got to help him refine his driving style and his tactics. I mean, underneath the skin, like underneath those sharp edges that he's got, yeah, he's uh, he's probably, you know, a world beater. He's probably someone who can win multiple world championships. But until he refines those styles, like you, they all compare him to Ayrton Senna, for example, Mark Marquez in MotoGP and whatnot, saying that they were aggressive like Marquez, uh, like Verstappen too. But... You know, at least they were able to iron out those deficiencies and um, refine their styles to become the great races that they are and were. So Verstappen's got to—he's not going to win a championship if he keeps doing what he's doing. He's got to be aggressive, but refine the aggressiveness to make it to where I guess the level that Senna was, because he was aggressive, but he would still—he wouldn't find himself in the situation Verstappen has multiple times. Yeah, it's just being slightly patient. You don't have to be completely compromising your style and being on the conservative front, but you've got to just know your limitations and the right moment to attack. And more often than not, losing these wads of points, you need to play that longer game and you see the best of them They over a course of a season. They almost always uh, comes around to them. If they do hold off, the things will fall into place. But with Verstappen, he's just an attack dog and he jumps the gun way too soon and doesn't even give himself the chance to see what could have been. And also a protected species might I add to that as well. But uh, anyway, yeah, just um, it's hard to not to have spoken out about this situation. What will happen in Barcelona, of course, in, in two weeks' time with Red Bull and will we see moves being made um, on Ricardo's contract front as well, whether this will accelerate talks that he's having with other teams about uh, departing and going elsewhere next season. But yeah, I personally think that this is uh, will be his final season at Red Bull. I don't think if this is the way that the team have managed the situation uh, this time, I don't want to see him put in that situation again with Red Bull um, in the future. Oh, so be it. He's had a, a good run there. And it's pretty clear, though, that if these very best efforts, you could argue he's probably... A, probably up there as one of the best drivers on the grid if that's not enough to show that he can be also the future of the team then he needs to get out of there ASAP. Well yeah he was very much going to be that future of the team until Max Verstappen was uh, that ra- well that rate well that race to acquire in between Mercedes and Red Bull and then Red Bull basically just said yes yeah, skip your junior career come to Toro Rosso we'll get you in Formula 1 um, ASAP and I guess you know whilst he has provided a lot of entertainment for us Verstappen and I still think that, you know, if he had an extra year in a junior formula or something, maybe he would learn to refine his racecraft and whatnot. But um, no, parachuted into F1 straight away and not many people are going to criticise him for this because they still think, oh, he's that once-in-a-generation driver, he's the next Senna or Schumacher or whatever. So, um, 
We got to look at it. We yeah. Sorry. I just say they've all uh, the best of them. At some point, they've had a, a bit of a, a wrongdoing, and they've benefited from a bit of tough love. And you've seen the best of them, like Schumacher, and um, even Senator to an extent serve. Yeah, well, after and suspensions at a various point, and they've come back and been better drivers for it. So well, yes. I wonder when this will occur for Verstappen if it hasn't already. Yeah, well, Senna after '89 Suzuka or whatever ended up serving a suspension. He lost the world championship and then came back the next two years and dominated. So, and Schumacher too after having that title taken away in Hereth or whatever in 97 as well same thing and then a couple of years later he's uh dominating the sport for championships in a row so um yeah it's just basically oh sorry five championships in a row yeah i think really um yes he's got the youth on his side so you can say plenty of time to learn but it's just reckless and um until he really does have some kind of consequence of the action other than just purely being out of the, the race itself. Um, it's just going to be this repetition process where he just goes and destroys races for all of those around. Basically, yeah. So let's uh, cap it off on that note anyway, the discussion about Red Bull. We'll just see what happens next time out and whether um, Red Bull have learnt their lesson or not. We probably know the answer to that one and that's uh, a firm no. Um Let's talk about World Endurance Championship because we've got the Super Season kicking off this weekend with the six hours of Spa, of course. It's uh, Fernando Alonso's first race in the Toyota 2 for LMP1 class. And uh, yeah, you said it last week that it kicks off uh, a a long string of weekends for him now. I think um, how many, nine races in 11 weekends or whatever he's got coming up. So between now and the end of July, (coughs) he's on the road every other week. And he's got the, and and of course the 24 hour Le Mans in there as well, which is coming up in June. So it's going to be a a hectic schedule for Alonso, but yeah, an exciting season lies ahead for WEC. It spans across, of course, this year and into the middle of next year with uh, another Le Mans race, the 20, another 24, hours of Le Mans uh, capping off the super season so Toyota of course the sole manufacturer in LMP1 now that Porsche is gone but they've got a strong privateer presence in LMP1 this year which should be good to see if especially if Toyota struggle with reliability we could see some of those guys coming to the fore and challenging them for the for the win of the championship and of course Le Mans probably the jewel in the crown there so 24 hours of racing I'm sure there's bound for a lot to go wrong and a lot of great drivers as well when you look up and down the grid and we had the news last week that Jensen Button will be joining uh, SMP Racing from Le Mans onwards so having him next to Fernando Alonso will be great to see. Yeah, again, that profile continues to rise. Liberty will continue to encourage um, those F1 drivers if they've got the spare time to to go over and I guess Brendan Hartley's opened the door uh, in terms of... um, really having it uh, correspondingly to get those stars perhaps have a foot in the door for for F1 and if they can collaborate together make sure there's that spot in the calendar where they don't have the events clashing then they can both benefit each other in the long run exactly so yeah we've got a strong grid for LMP1 LMP2 of course a lot of those guys coming out of LMP2 and into LMP1 with those privateer categories for me I think I'll be really closely watching the GTE Pro class because we've got um, a new Aston Martin Vantage car for this season uh, very striking livery you could say with those lime green colours that they have and then of course the arrival of the BMW M8 as well so having another manufacturer on the grid along with Porsche and Ferrari and Ford with their GT cars as well so it's going to be a solid race Um, I'm just annoyed that 
uh, Fox Sports here are not showing the race in its entirety. I think Euro, the channel Eurosports only going to show the last three hours of the races, which is going to be pretty gutting because I'd r- rather see the whole race in its entirety. Um, and hopefully Le Mans, they do end up broadcasting the full 24 hours as they've done in the past. So that would be good to see. Yeah, and they always have that iconic race call from John Hindauer, isn't it, and co. That really put on yeah, the Radio Le Mans crew as well. So that should be great to see. But yeah, another great race this weekend. We've got um, supercars at Perth as well, Barbagello, and of course, MotoGP hitting continental Europe too. So um, a lot of excitement all around. So let's cap it off then, our sporting moments of the week. And yeah, I guess we had a lot of footy last week to digest with the Anzac Day round and everything. And since then, things haven't uh, been a bit quiet. But, um, you know, apart from uh, for me, just it's not really a moment of this week, but May the 1st, of course, always a, a day of reflection, of course, um, with the passing of Anton Senna in 1994, this year's 24 years. But a lot of people have pointed out, importantly, that 30 years ago, uh, it's the 30th anniversary of Senna's first pole position or first victory for McLaren um, in 1988 when he first joined the team. And that happened at Imola, of course, as well. So I just want to point that out, that that's, uh, you know, 30 years since then, the scene of his uh, demise was the scene of his first triumph at McLaren, of course. And we know what that started, the whole era at McLaren Honda, where he won three championships. 88 was a dominant season. So um, just reflecting on that, it's always a, a sad time when you think back and of course, Roland Ratzenberger, too, on the 30th of April, um, that, yeah, you know, 24 years on, we still remember them fondly. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that get very poignant without turning into a, a circus, just the, the indelible print that entire weekend left on the sport. There's always going to be before and after Imola 94, and this one, it's, it's going to be etched into the minds, particularly for those who are present or following the sport at the time and the legacy it's left it, it's changed the sport in so many ways really it almost modernized it into that 21st century type that we had when it was probably almost in that archaic structure until that that weekend but um you've always got to pause and just just remember the influence particularly at and did have no one really before him was quite like him and i guess no one subsequently but um other than that i think for a personal sporting moment probably to say that the sunday at um baku just goes to show that this season after all that uh, negativity and talk that uh, f1 is really having a crisis it's, it's been sexier than ever this season um it just shows any weekend you can't be certain what the the result would be and yes we've had the interventions of the, the safety cars and whatnot but uh, it's truly been just something completely unpredictable and we haven't seen that in many years no not at all and i agree with you there um as i said yeah showing shades of 2010 in a way which was the last really unpredictable championship where we had those multiple teams fighting for the win and all that so um i just hope that yeah we don't have a trend as such emerge in the next couple of races and um, that we keep getting just uh, different race winners and uh, chaos thrown into the equation too. Um, and it just shows to sh- goes to show you that even though you might have the form car or you're the form driver, that anything can happen. And uh, yeah, an unpredictable championship is a really good one. Yeah, it just shows us some depth to the field for the first time in a while. It's not a foregone conclusion. It will be uh, really a, 
in the first instance till last season, Mercedes and Ferrari, and now I've had Red Bull get in on the act, and we've seen just the, the, those so-called second drivers showing that they're stronger than ever. So we've got some real versatility there, and it means that uh, that championship picture is going to be wide open until the, the dying stages of the season. Well, we hope so that the, if uh, come November in Abu Dhabi that we do have a title race on our hands still to be decided. But uh, anyway, thanks for joining us this time. A big addition, of course. We had a lot to talk about, especially with the Red Bull guys too. But uh, we'll be back, of course, next week to preview Barcelona for you and wrap up all what's been making the rounds in the world of motorsport and in Formula One. So thanks for joining us again and uh, we'll see you guys next time. Till then.